Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm your host, Sean Merwin, here with, with just such grace and dignity is my co-host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, I, I, I was overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, no, it's nothing but, I mean, if there's one thing I was known for uh, from high school on, it's grace and dignity. They were my two friends, grace yeah. and dignity, super yeah. nice, really. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, they're fine people fine people <laughs> nice uh we have so much to get into today uh that we're not going to goof around anymore we are going to jump straight into our tweet bag and patreon missive section because we have more questions than we know what to do with and we will get to them over time and we may even have to have a show where we just focus solely on mm -hmm. questions and comments from from listeners but the first one comes in from code chemist on patreon who shares a favorite paranoia gear story. When we talked about equipment last week, I brought up how paranoia actually uses equipment to uh, get into the, the flow of the game, the sort of humorous tone of the game. And it, it actually affects the adventures and the characters. And so code chemist tells this story. Our party went into R and D to pick up some test equipment. One player got a handgun labeled trader killer. And your whole thing in paranoia is watch out for traitors. So at some point during the game, we were attacked by some mutants and he aimed the gun and pulled the trigger. It turns out that the traitor killer was actually just a gun shaped bomb that went off when you pulled the trigger uh, due to fluke roll of the dice. He took no damage and the enemies all got blasted. He reported back to R and D that the prototype worked great. That's awesome. And that's that's exactly how I want my equipment to work in, in my games as well. Yeah, I mean, right? that's I want fair, there to right? be fun stories behind them. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want that necklace of fireballs to randomly go off uh, if if something goes wrong, which it used to do, right? In first edition, yeah. you made saving throws for your equipment. And if it failed, it exploded. That's right. So that's right, you did. could have all, all that sorts of things. Wow. And, you know, would that add fun to a game? For some people, it might. For some people, not, depending on how much chaos you love in your game. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. We're going to talk a little bit more about equipment and stuff later. But, um, but yeah, I, I love stories like this. And it really does highlight the kind of things that stick in our minds and make for awesome stories and how that, yeah, I mean, again, I'll, I'll say it. It's it's not from just having like equipment that's just all in the background, right? It's like, why does it come to the forefront? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the next question comes from Thomas Christie at D20 Play. And uh, Thomas says, my favorite adventures to run are concise in their descriptions. This trait has varied tremendously over the years from first editions G1 having 10 encounters per page to some second edition adventures where they have 10 pages per encounter. Now, Thomas exaggerates a bit, but not a lot. There were some encounters that did go on for pages. <laughs> uh, it is interesting that being concise seems to be at odds with pay, which is often by word count. Any designers have thoughts on that? Should profit sharing be a better method of payment? Now, you're doing your series on you know making so a career as a freelancer yeah. so i want to let you exactly i want to let you take this uh question well I, I think there's to me there's two parts of this one is that sort of the the concept of why are adventures no longer concise 
in the way that say against the giants are like why why don't we have like a classic adventure anymore be 15 pages long as some of these older adventures are and and that's because we back then would provide a dm with just the barest of information and you would take that and extrapolate an experience out of it and on one hand that could often be super super awesome right it'd be like the coolest thing ever what your dm did with this and i've shared in the past there's a spycraft adventure where we did a racing scene racing against the villain we broke into the apartment in the hotel we did all like five things right it was an hour and a half for this scene and later i got to see the adventure it's like a paragraph and a half that tells you that the villain is staying in this hotel and likes to race cars. And that's the kind of experiences that a lot of games work with and that old D&D used to. But as we wanted to make the experience more reliable, we decided let's flesh this out. Let's make sure that a DM knows exactly what's going on here and what should happen. And so there's a race scene mechanics and there's how to break into the hotel room and there's you know, the person's itinerary and all this stuff is spelled out for you to try to make for a more consistent play experience. So flip side of that is the the whole idea of this word count piece. And, And what I will say is that there have been projects where someone said to me, hey, this section has to be X thousand words. And I thought to myself, I think for the pacing of the adventure, it should be less than that, right? Uh, and a few times where I think it should be more than that. But it is the job. And, and the reason it's the job is because what the, the company is often doing, especially at the more pro levels, like a wizard's level, you know, somebody who's really planning through things, they've got a page count for those books. The books will be printed. The layout matters. It's not only PDF or primary PDF. And so you really need these sections with a certain number of art pieces and a certain number of words so that it all fills the page and, and works correctly. So you need to hit that word count. And so then your job becomes, well, I must make the experience be that many words. I've got to flesh that out and hit that goal, even if in my mind the adventure section should be shorter or the piece that I'm writing should be shorter. But um, I think also that, that, well, I don't think that what ends up happening is that because someone says to you, hey, write X words, uh, or that you're getting paid by the word that you are making bad content, which sometimes people have said, right? That you will pad, you'll write more words to get paid more or anything like that. I, I think that you are almost always trying to, I mean, I don't know a case where someone hasn't been trying to write the best they can. And often that means concise, good, tight language, even if the style is bigger, if that makes sense. Yeah. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, two 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 thoughts on this. Well, probably more than two once I get going. But <laughs> yeah, I I've been in situations where I've been as the freelancer needing to write ten thousand words, and so I will start and I will think I'm never going to get to ten thousand words. So I'm going to take a few more descript descriptions in there, throw some other things in that might be useful. And then by the time I get to the end of the project, I'm at 15,000 words and I'm cutting out all those words that I thought I might need to get to 10,000 um, because I want to, I want the text to do exactly what the consumer needs and what the person I'm writing for needs. Um, as a lead designer, when I'm working with freelancers, I will give them a word count that I think fits exactly what the goal of their section or their pages need. But I will tell my writers, you know, rather than just try to fill this space up, here's 
here's what I want the section to do. Do it in the amount of words you need. If you're mm -hmm. under, right under, we can find more words to put. We can add new spells. We can add another town to write about. We can do all those things. Uh, if you need to write more, write more, as long as it's doing the goal of what you're your writing is supposed to be hitting um, and, and we can move that around. And that's even knowing how long, long the book needs to be, how many pages, if you're creating spell cards, if you're creating power cards to go along with the Kickstarter, then you're going to have space issues. So yeah. uh, it's important that as a freelancer, you write to the word count that you're asked, unless you get special dispensation not to. Right. In terms of getting paid, um, royalties versus versus word rate. It depends. Uh, I've written something where I would have gotten five hundred dollars for it, and because it was royalties, instead I got ten thousand dollars in the long run. I've written things where I would have gotten two hundred and fifty dollars if I had done it by word count, and because of royalties, I made about thirty dollars. Yeah. Uh, so that there's no, yeah, th there's no yeah. way of knowing. Um, and but, yeah, as a freelancer, you just need to. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Pelgrane so Press. I don't know if we answered. I'll oh. just say that Pelgrane yeah, Press shared something. This was a, a while back when when word rates were being discussed in the Ian world, but they shared that they often, or, or a couple of times, have offered someone, "Hey, do you want royalties instead of a word rate?" And that in their experience, every time they did that, the person would have been better off getting a word rate because their sales volume was low enough and the, you know, the, the royalty they could afford to pay was low enough that it didn't work that way because they're using adventures in a different way. Right. And so that that's tough where you just, you don't yeah. know how many sales you're going to have and, and royalties generally are going to be post costs, right? That's the way almost anyone's going to offer it to you. So right. you start with zero payment. And then once that studio company, whatever has made their money back, and, and are at the zero level, then you're getting it off of that profit. And that can take a long time. You know, on some DMs Guild projects, you would never get a royalty payment because the, reac the reality is those royalties are paying off costs for quite some time, sometimes years, sometimes forever. Yep, it's true. Uh, so thank you, uh, Thomas, for that question. And now we have something from Andrew Bashinsky at Sword Compass, also known as the winner of the 2021 DM, uh, D&D DM Challenge. Yeah. So uh, Andrew writes, I saw this tweet, obviously from a different industry, but I'm wondering if Mastering Dungeons would want to tackle the topic of how both making art and, quote, total unwillingness to cooperate fit into making tabletop role-playing games, especially relating to preserving a vision within a collaborative industry. And the tweet that Andrew was talking about was one line and then a quote from Joni Mitchell. The line is, artists, artists tend to be free thinkers who march to the beat of their own drum. That was the, the tweet. And then the, the quote from Joni Mitchell is, I heard someone from the music business saying they are no longer looking for talent. They want people with a certain look and a willingness to cooperate. I thought that's interesting because I believe a total unwillingness to cooperate is what is necessary to be an artist, not for perverse reasons, but to protect your vision. The considerations of a corporation, especially now, have nothing to do with art or music. That's why I spend my time now painting. So again, Joni Mitchell, you know, musician. And 
boy, you know, we could have a whole wow. episode about this, and I say this all the time. <laughs> but let let me let me let me talk about RPGs as art because I think that's an important thing to t- to take away from this, uh, right? Obviously, every type of art is different, but art we need to define what define what art is before we can answer many of these questions. So. One definition is that art is a distillation of senses or a group of senses down to its essence. So when you think of the visual arts, painting, sculpture, it's a distillation of sight and then the thoughts and emotions that that sight provokes in the piece. For music, it's sound. Uh, for, For perfume, it's smell. For food, it might be taste. It might be presentation. It might be texture. You know, all of those things. So if that is the definition of art in this case, then what are games? Well, I contend that games are a distillation of living life as an art. So what do I mean by that? How do we go about our day? We perform tasks, either ones we set in front of ourselves or others, generally in the pursuit of some goal. The goal could be work-related. It could be relaxation-related, but it's... I want to do this, and these are the steps I need to take. What games do is they replicate that pursuit of goals by narrowing down the scope to a confined set of rules and goals and tools to reach those goals. So it's playing a game is like living life, only rather than this big amalgamous, how am I going to get through my day it's we're trying to get the most points or we are trying to build the tallest tower or we are right trying to do something and these are the tools and these are the rules that we have to use so uh if if that is what tabletop role-playing games are uh role-playing games expand the definition of what games are because a role-playing game is much more complicated than rock paper scissors or Monopoly, or any of those board games that we might know. Uh, So the same people playing the same game may be working toward different goals, even though they're using the same tools in the same game. So I'm playing a game where Beth's goal in this role-playing game is to save the village from the rampaging elf army. Stephanie's goal is to gain a thousand more experience points so she can get to level five and be able to cast Fireball soon, right? It's the same game, same piece of art, but there's different things involved. Uh, so to get back to Andrew's question, uh, this unity of vision versus making a team built product goes back to that question of what is the goal of the art? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you make art by yourself? Absolutely. Is it better than art that's made by a group? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends on how you as the artist are meeting the goal of that art. Uh, The idea that artists are some sort of mystical beings that channel a different, right, into a different realm is is a fallacy uh, that has been disproven. I, there was a book, I can't remember the title. It was like the insane the insanity fallacy of artists or something like Uh in order to make great art you have to see the world differently it does it help to see the world differently to to show somebody something new it can but that doesn't mean that you necessarily then have the tools to create it 
if you are inhibited in some way in that form of expression. Yeah. That's I, all I got. To me, well, and that's a lot. That's great. I love it. Um, to me, this is an interesting question in our area because the very act of play is art and can be rebellion, right? So we are dreaming collectively at the table a different world where we are heroes or scoundrels or whatever, right? We are literally play acting, which is, you know, acting is also art, right? And we're doing that at the table with the material that someone wrote. And, and mm -hmm. as designers, we're creating that piece, right? We're creating the script, but it's not even a script in the normal sense. It's all these ingredients that DMs and players are going to feed off of. And all of that is art. Um, and sometimes the best way to get that outcome is following a careful process. It's working with others well on a team. It's sticking to plans. And that can seem really counterintuitive, but, but it is still art and it's still part of the art process to work that way. And I totally, totally get where this quote and, and Joni Mitchell is coming from, right? And that subversion as art uh, or as, as an ingredient of art, I think it is what makes art awesome many times, right? It's, it's that breadth of what art can be and, and corporate art can be very fun as we can see with any number of overproduced, overarranged, engineered, songs that are just made to be a hit right and there are those people who time after time have been able to do that uh very successfully but then there are those things that come out of nowhere that just explode on scenes and they do that because they are so subversive and different so but both things can be incredibly pleasing right and it's and it's all still a different type of art yeah yeah i i love that idea of, of sub, the subversive nature of art because it is but with role-playing games, when you create them, you're creating them in a way that you, as Teo said, you're trying to help someone else create art. Yeah, and be subversive. <laughs> and it's hard to be sub... Yeah, it's hard to be subversive while at the same time trying to show someone how to do the thing that you want mm -hmm. them to do, which is sort of the opposite of being mm -hmm. sub subversive. It's right. But, it's we, being but we do see that, right? It's I mean, adventures... Adventures do things like, you know, uh, they both prop up and tear up the establishment, right? And, and, and you get to choose as designer which oh, sure. of those you're, you're enabling, right? And, and so you can prop up the yeah. apparatus or dismantle it as part of your adventure. And that, that's a choice you get to make. But, right. but I don't think that takes you away from, you know, that you use a four-step process to design adventures or that you work well with others. Or that when a company hires you, right. you do what they say, right? Like that's, that, is, that does, to me does not erode from the art. Right. Great question. And, you know, the, yeah, yeah. And this, I, I want to say one more thing. This mm -hmm. idea of subversion is, <clears throat> is fascinating uh, because role-playing games have always been subversive it, as, it, as their role in mm -hmm. society from D&D &D in 1974 uh, through to today. It's not the mainstream. It has never been the mainstream, even as it becomes more mainstream, it's still, you know, outside the realm of understanding of most people in the societies across the globe. They yeah. may have heard of D&D and they may have laughed about it as it was joked about on some sitcom that they watched. Right. But 
it's still not something that they understand. It's sort of creating your own fun, creating your own entertainment, as opposed to sitting back and being entertained is has always, I think, been subversive since since we've gotten into this mass media uh, part of our humanity where the television, the radio plays have always sort of been how people are entertained as opposed to making their own. <laughs> well, our next question sort of hits on that uh, subversive versus pop question a bit. Shall I go with it? You want to read it? Yeah. So Falcon sure. Neil on Patreon asks a question. D&D's audience contains everything from 40-year-old veteran grognard optimizers to newbie norms who think gaming is Monday night football. <laughs> if Sean and Teos were project leads doing the next generation D&D, how would you approach that difference? Would the approach change if executives gave maximize the number of players as opposed to maximize this year's revenue? What do you think? <laughs> well, I think that uh, th there's a there's a piece in this question that really says, you know, hey, like this choice that executives gave you make make money now or make um, or, or bring in more players. And, and I think that what we're starting to see and, and have for some time is 50 percent of all players are new. So you're actually maximizing both this year's revenue and future years when you focus on new players. And further, you know, something we try to, to say often is D&D is an unusual role-playing game, perhaps the only one where they are tasked not with, you could argue primarily they're not tasked with making a great game. They are tasked with being a brand mm -hmm. that catapults other properties to greatness, right? The way that Marvel is not about comic books uh, as its primary piece, right? And so D&D as a brand and not just a game wants to establish as many touch points with as many new people as possible. So it is actually far, far less important whether the 40-year veteran uh, is brought into the game. That, that's, that's really a tiny bit. But you can do so quite easily, actually, right? You can throw a little bit of nostalgia and those people will be largely pleased. And, and I mean, and I count myself in that group, right? Like, you know, you, you release a Dark Sun setting, I'm going to be super excited. You're excited. You release Spelljammer, I'm going to be super excited. It doesn't have to be what I had back then. It'll please me. And it can still be something that really on-ramps new players. And I think to me, what I would love to see and what I think D&D should be doing is more and more looking at how do you game, make that game super approachable, right? And we're sort of seeing the opposite so far in the play test where when we've talked about this, right? More features, uh, feats, more choices, making it harder than just saying, I want to be an elf fighter, you know, and that should be yeah. a five minute done. And I want to play the game, right? And instead it's this super media experience. Well, that makes it harder and harder. And the more that you have to, Think about bonuses and, and what you're doing and all these toggling these switches of math. Well, that, that's going to bog down that acceptance. So I, I would absolutely not design for that. Yeah, exactly. You can always add content to a game. It's very, very hard to take content away from a game uh, once it's there. If it's in the book, people are going to want to try to use it. And if it's very complicated, they are still going to want to try to use it. So yeah. making a game that, as Teo said, that's approachable and that captures the imagination of what makes 
role-playing games in this sort of self-created entertainment work is, is super valuable. You can make more books later and add those things that very uh, technically adept and technically minded and detail-oriented players want to build you know, the best mousetrap ever with their character and do all the, the yeah. minute things that, that they, that they love. You can do that with more books, but you can't take that out of the game once it's there and already turned off a, a section of your potential fan base, potential player base by including it. The funny thing is we also have an, a copy that's so old that almost anything you come up with has a basis, right? So like, when we were talking about, well, what if your level one really felt almost like a level zero and was super easy and didn't have feats and really just took minutes to make. And then your level two was sort of a little bit more and your level three was really your meaty, true level that felt more like what first level does. And then I was thinking to myself, well, you know, Dark Sun, you started a third level. Like there's always something in nostalgia that actually goes back to whatever new thing you'd come up with. And it was you know, like, what? I'm gonna. You're gonna tell me to start at third level because I'm an experienced player. And it's like, well, that's what we did with Dark Sun. <laughs> you certainly could. You know, like it's yeah. not that. It's not that weird an idea once you really think about it. Yeah. So I mean, that's. I think Teos and I agree. You know, on that approach. What approach would we take? We take the. What's the What's the essence of D and D? What brings millions of people to play every year? and makes them happy and makes them excited for their weekly or monthly or yearly game. And let's distill that down to its essence and find a way to make that accessible to everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good well, questions. thank you for all of those questions. Yes. Great questions. And now we have just as much news to cover a lot happening. I'm going to let you take the first one because I haven't sure. read it yet. <laughs> well, uh, this is Chris Perkins on leveling up our creative process, learnings from Spelljammer. And it also includes new errata, which can be kind of easy to miss this errata document. But uh, a lot of what you know, you're going to immediately see if you if you go to D&D Beyond and check this out. Um, well, first is that it's on D&D Beyond. So there was this whole thing that was done where D&D said, hey, we've got a new D&D studio blog on the D&D website. And we're going to you know, tell you about all these things. And in fact, the D&D Studio blog's last posting was about the Hadozi incident with Spelljammer and the, the issues that happened there. But this is now on D&D Beyond. So are we moving away from the D&D Studio blog? Oh, hard to know. But we are now on a, on a blog on D&D Beyond. And here Chris Perkins talks about how they have learned from the issues with the Hadozi. They are instituting an inclusion review process. Every word, illustration, and map must be reviewed by multiple outside cultural consultants prior to publication. Inclusion reviews are going to take place at least once during each of three phases that they talk about. Text creation, art creation, and the final product review. In that final phase, the cultural consultants are reviewing all three things pulled together. Uh, or all two things, I guess, the art and the text in the layout. They're seeing that all together. The consultants at these, each of these stages are creating written reports, which are shared with studio leadership. The product lead works with the art director and managing editor to develop a plan to address any issues that are brought up. Feedback and changes are compiled for review by consultants and the studio's executive producer. And after it's all approved, the plan is implemented. 
If new content is required, that new content gets an inclusion review. Reprints, when a book is reprinted, will also get an inclusion review, which is sort of amazing, right? So because reprints happen a lot with 5e, much more often than previous editions, so every time they're reprinting the book, they're going to give it a review and see whether it needs to have that change to it, which is kind of amazing from a errata standpoint. Um, so maybe I'll pause there and then we can talk about the errata document a little bit after that. But what do you think, Sean? I think that it's a good plan. I think that as a publisher with deadlines and with all the absolute chaos that goes into creating a D&D RPG or really any book, um, that it's going to take a lot of firm um, guidance to stick with this process. Yeah. Uh, but if they want to avoid the issues that they've had in the past, that it's at least a good, it's a good plan. Let's see how the, that plan gets executed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, this is a lot to do. This is, um, this mm -hmm. is substantial. This is beyond what you would expect any company today is doing by far. And, and now I was talking about this with some friends that, your small company doesn't necessarily need this kind of review, right? Because a small company, or if you're an individual, it's like one or two people who are working on a product. And when they make a change, they can discuss things. But reading this blog, one of the things is you and I had sort of on, on a previous show said, you know, I bet what happened was someone started putting this into layout and said, whoo, the Hadozi, there's too much white space here. Somebody give me three paragraphs and lead writer gives three paragraphs that don't go through any of the review steps and you end up with a problematic product, right? That happens in the largest companies almost only, I wanna say, right? But it, it, you have to have a lot of people involved for that mm -hmm. kind of thing to happen. Um, so Wizards really is kind of the company that needs to put this into place, but it is big. I mean, this is a lot of work to do all these steps and it certainly has to increase their timeline significantly to go through all these steps. So I am, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm really curious to see how this will go over time, I'm glad they're doing it for sure, right? But but um, but it's a lot, and it sort of to me makes me think about in fourth edition there was a whole department that did editorial review and development, and there really were mm -hmm. line developers and and editors at various stages, and that got sort of reduced. And so I'm glad that this is existing from the uh, inclusion review sensitivity review process. But I sort of feel like there should Wizards should have that developmental studio back, that that original editing approach, um, because I think this is somewhat symptomatic of that, and would also lead to higher quality products. So. Mm -hmm. I can't argue with any of that. So, what about the errata itself? Well, it's a lot. It's sort of surprising, um, and it covers all sorts of things. So, if you if you go to the blog, there'll be a link somewhere in there that you can click on. And that takes you to a, a file that is on uh, the D&D Beyond website. And, and it's, it's a substantial amount of changes. Like it's things like, you know, monsters changed CR. Uh, like an example of something is like there's a monster that had one skill proficiency and it changes to another. To which I want to go like, really? Did this matter? Did we really need to fix what <laughs> skill proficiency it had? Um, and then there are things that I think folks, you know, will be, there'll be some discussion around, which I think is always healthy around things like, uh, there's a, a the word blind 
Blinding, I think, is in one of the attack powers for a monster. And that goes away, and it's now like, you know, flashing brilliant light, or I forget what it is, but something that doesn't say the word blind in it, even though in effect what it's doing is removing your ability to see, right? You know, that's an interesting topic to, to think about, and I found myself spending some time thinking about it this weekend. Um, there is a species that was described as androgynous in the Spelljammer setting, and, you know, that has a biological aspect to it, right? But now that is removed. So now I guess they <laughs> have genders like you would by default expect. And, and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that, right? But, but maybe this is the kind of thing that will get flagged more and more. And, and we're, you know, I think it's going to be good in, in that the, the industry, I think, will benefit from thinking through these kinds of changes and... and you know, but it, but it, it, mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to be an active learning process, right? Of these kind of things they're doing. To me, this is too much errata. Um, overall, like just too many changes. I don't think a product should change this much uh, between its you know first few months. But um, but we'll see. Yeah, well, it's good to know what the process is, and we will keep an eye on that. <clears throat> uh, Dragonlance has confirmed that it will be available for the DMs Guild starting on December 6th. So you creators out there who create things on the DMs Guild, December 6th is your uh, deadline to, not deadline to end, but deadline to start putting things up. Uh, in other Dragonlance news, there was a video from the Wizards team that covered uh, how there would be many dragons or different types of dragons in the adventure. Dragonelles are given as an example of mounts that will be used by foes. There will be battlefields with dragons, draconians, dragon elves, and more. Um, and the battlefield encounters are trying to capture the unpredictability of war, but also focus on the role that the characters play within those battles. Any, any thoughts on that? Uh, it all sounds really fun. I'm excited to see this. Very excited. Yep. So there is a YouTube video talking about all of this that is linked in our show notes. Yeah. Uh, I haven't played the Neverwinter MMO in a while, but it, it has released a new Underdark expansion that revises the Drow. Tell me about this, Teos. Yeah, so North Dark Reaches just came out last week, and it focuses on the Underdark, on Drow, on Myconids. It's gorgeous, really. I mean, unbelievable. Uh, I'm going to have to stream some of it because I think it really is just great fuel for any DM that wants to do an Underdark world. I mean, there's just these towering mushrooms and just incredible underground landscapes really beautiful and this storyline as actually many at least three previous major neverwinter stories have done is focusing on drow and an interview on game rant discusses how the team worked to revise the portrayal of drow how they worked with with the coast uh and with bob and gino salvatore to treat them more like people this is quote more like people and less like an evil race that is irredeemable and are easy to kill because the drow are just as nuanced as people as any other race in the Forgotten Realms, and it's important to represent that properly. I feel like they've finally really broken out of that and really gotten to a cool place where it feels like a fantasy all of its own as opposed to the story of a few specific drow. It feels like the drow are a huge, sprawling world filled with just as much diversity, chaos, and beauty as the rest. And what I've seen so far in the game really looks at... Um, the concept of drow that follow Loth versus drow that do not and how they are warring in the underdark 
Um, and, and that reinforces what we'd seen a long time ago on the studio blog where, where uh, Jeremy was, Crawford was talking about this, this change to the idea that, that not all drow follow law. And so that then creates this diversity in how you can portray drow. So you're working with some drow against other drow and all of those different stories. But yeah, it's interesting. This is the 24th storyline released for the MMO. Kind of impressive. Wow. That, that's a lot. I didn't know there were that many releases. But now for something completely different. The Monty Python role-playing game Kickstarter. Um, there are only three days left as of this recording, so it will be over right about time that the show is dropping. It's currently at $1.7 million out of a $200,000 goal, so it has reached its uh, target market for sure. Uh, this is how it is, it is described in the Kickstarter. Monty Python's co-curricular medieval reenactment program is a rigorous course of study intended only for serious students of English history. It is by no means a complete and comprehensive manual for running imaginative, highly unpredictable, medieval-themed role-playing games based on the complete comedic output of Monty Python with one's friends. This looks like it is a licensed product. Uh, it's good to know. It looks very odd, as you might guess. The Kickstarter itself is humorous to read through. Uh, I have backed it at a physical level, which I rarely do with Kickstarters, uh, because I want the 10 custom dice that include the D4, the D6, the D8, the D10, the D12, the D14, the D16, the D18, the D20, and the dreaded D30, all of which are used in the game. Uh, so the, again, that will be available on Kickstarter only for the next three days, so if you are listening to this on Thursday when the show drops, you're going to want to check it out very quickly. Or on the backer kit or whatever post thing they do. But yeah, I'm just looking at I I tried yep. not to look at this because I didn't want to, to spend money on it. But now you've made me look at it. And the coconut dice roller that you can, you know, do together. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, that's tempting. Yep. And, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of spam talk in the what you get, like an original rules light system with spam, guidance on designing adventures with spam, uh, lot and lots of spam, sixteen point two percent more spam, as as the stretch stretch goals fall. So yeah, I mean, yeah. just nostalgic wise, I will never probably play this game, but just to just to give it a glance, I think has to happen. <laughs> uh, just in time for Christmas, we also have the Game Master's Books of Legendary Dragons from Macmillan, from Macmillan Publishing. So Macmillan is no joke. Macmillan made $1.4 million, a billion dollars of revenue in 2021. They, they are a large publishing company that own many imprints and are connected to many other types of media. And they are putting out Game Master books now. So this game master book the one of legendary dragons um, readers will find more than two dozen truly epic beasts each which come with a complete backstory history motivation layers layer actions legendary combat actions and more they are designed to be worthy of focus to any campaign you will also find new dragon kin wyverns drakes kobolds and dragon races plus new dragon related organizations skills classes and magic including dragon riders, dragon hunters, enhanced spells. Uh, you get the idea. 
So I, I saw this. I was like, wow, it's that's interesting. You know, first of all, Macmillan's publishing it, and it's the first of four books. I didn't even notice the first four or the first three. And then I saw the names that were attached to it. Uh, some of them you may sound familiar. Aaron Hubrick, Dan Dillon, and Cody C. Lewis. I'm like, but Dan works for Wizards of the Coast. What What's going on here? And then I looked at the cover, and the other two names I saw on it were Hake and Pinto, as in James Hake, who is one of my peers at Ghostfire Gaming and who worked on many Wizards of the Coast and Critical Role products. And James Pinto, I assume it's James Pinto, who is associated with Seventh Sea, as well as the uh, Legend of the Five Rings game. So that's wow. some that's some Dan Dillon being, of course, a Wizards of the Coast uh, designer. So I don't know if this was a book that was published earlier and is just getting like a new focus because of Dragonlance coming out. Uh, but they're also Game Master book of non-player characters, the Game Master's book of random encounters, and the Game Master's book of traps, puzzles, and dungeons. And I just find it fascinating that yeah. we are seeing so much D&D uh, &D focus by these larger publishing companies and other media empires are getting in on the on the D&D &D act. And it, it looks like they have published a lot of uh, war game type stuff in the past. So, so they're not new to the gaming arena overall, but, but clearly expanding into this more RPG area. That's very interesting. Tell me about D20 Monkey, Brian Patterson. So a, a lot of listeners who have been around for a while will remember that Brian Patterson, a.k.a. D20 Monkey, is an artist and cartoonist. Uh, he developed the AlphaStream logo, for example, uh, and I highly recommend working with Brian. Uh, he had a long-running comic strip that he ran that had sort of several different themes to it, and one of them was a very Cthulhu horror aspect, Innsmouth Garden Society. It was a fan favorite. And he has begun to release it again. And it is unbelievable. He's supporting it through his Patreon. So uh, definitely check that out. And then uh, this, the, the, the strips that have been out so far are just incredible art, really cool story and, and theme to them. So highly recommended. Link in our show notes. Uh, it's fantastic. And I'm excited to see where the story goes. Mm. From D20 Monkey to Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press is hiring a community and social media manager. The job duties include social media posting, weekly newsletters, press kits, and more. Uh, they do give a salary for this. It's full-time remote from forty-seven dollars to $57,000 a year, including paid annual leave and company health care plan. Applications close November 18th. So if you're hearing this the day it drops, you only have a day to get in your application. Last but not least, well, not last, but definitely not least, a an article came out just today, just this morning, about Hasbro and how its stock is tanking today because of this article. And because of what this article talks about, the Bank of America, who rates stocks, has double downgraded Hasbro stock today as of this morning. And the last I checked, it was trading down over 8% as we record. Wow. And why is that? It's all about Magic the Gathering. So 
the report that came from the Bank of America uh, regulators says that we are downgrading Hasbro to underperform after conducting a deep dive into the company's Magic the Gathering business. Hasbro is overproducing Magic cards, which has propped up recent results, but is destroying the long-term value of the brand. Card prices are falling, game stores are losing money, and collectors are liquidating as large retailers also cut orders. Mm. We've talked about this in terms of overproducing role-playing game material, but we've never talked about it in terms of doing it for Magic the Gathering. And it seems that people are paying uh, attention to this downgrade and the stock is plummeting the last I checked. And I, I wonder if this is the same. I wonder if both sides of Wizards are doing this, right? If because we, we've reported before that one of the things that happened was Hasbro said, hey, look, Wizards of the Coast is high, high profit, right? So incredibly profitable compared to the rest of Hasbro. You should make more products. So they did that. And, you know, maybe both sides are experiencing a little bit of this like, oh, Strixhaven, I barely remember you, but I really wanted to actually focus on you. But I kind of got caught up in all this other stuff. And Fizzbands, I barely got to read it. And, you know, so there's that possibility that this is happening in both Magic and with and D&D. And I'm curious whether we're going to see more of that or maybe not. Maybe it's fine. But uh, but I, that's interesting. Hmm. Stocks tend to recover. I'm not really worried about the long-term. Magic has been, you know, up and down over the years, but overall really up. So I'm not particularly worried for Magic, but uh, but it's a good question. Yeah, and it's I think it's an important question, too, in terms of as Hasbro pays more attention to Wizards of the Coast. You know, we've talked about why has 5e succeeded and can the success continue especially with people who might be much more focused Mm -hmm. on short-term and long-term profit over the viability of it as a brand and as a game come into power and come into focus, what will happen? And this may be that first look at what is happening. Yeah, fascinating. And last bit of news, uh, Matt Colville talks about what are dungeons and equipment for? Um, we talked about equipment last show, and not long after that, um, I didn't see this before we did our show, and I assume you hadn't as well. I don't know when it went up, but uh, Matt gives his thoughts on the game and equipment's role in it. Would you like to summarize for us, Teos? Yeah, I was really surprised to see this. Um, it, it had been a video that a couple people had shared, and so I went and looked at it after we recorded last time, and I'm like, oh, this is like so related because... He holds up the 5e uh, sort of adventuring gear chart and goes, look at all these items. You know, when's the last time this came up in your game, right? Which was a lot of what we were asking last episode. And he says, you know, this is all just nostalgia. And he goes into talking about, you know, why is it a 10 foot pole? Well, because back then the squares were 10 feet, you know, and so you needed to cover that reach across to the tap the next square and and how all of this just was based on this old style of play. But then he kind of goes into another area that I thought was really interesting where he says, 5e is no longer a dungeon crawler. Whereas the original 
forms of Dungeons Dragons were not only a dungeon crawler, but they were kind of a horror resource game where you had to pit yourself against the dungeon to see if you were going to survive. And in fact, the answer was almost always no. It was just a question of how long can you go? So it's almost like a horror movie, right? Like how long will your character go until they fall prey to some trap, trick, whatever? The world isn't fair. And so you're using all this equipment to do things. So he talks about like the mirror, you know, you would look around a corner so that your head wouldn't get shot off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'd also use it for Medusa, as we right. talked about. Um, and all of these things mattered from that sort of eke out of victory at all, you know, at any, in any way possible, uh, s- snap victory out of the jaws of defeat. And then he kind of further says that D and D these days is not actually, not only is it not a dungeon crawler, but it's not any type of game is the way he puts it. Um, that it's generic play because if you do any one thing, that will be used against you, right? And so he says, like, Call of Cthulhu is a horror survival game where you're going to die. And therefore, it can't be all these other things. And D&D does not want to offer you so much of that that then it can't be the other things. It wants to be all the things. And so it has to be this sort of generic middle spot. I thought that was super, super interesting uh, analysis. And I don't entirely agree complete with the generic piece. Um, like he was saying, it's not a high fantasy game, right? And and but but uh, but mm-hmm. but I agree more than I disagree. Let's say. I don't know what you think about all that. Right. It it's become more of a storytelling game. It's been be it's become more of a character story driven story driven game. Yeah. To its benefit and its detriment. Um, yeah, character I, I and group to say, but. Right. Like it's, it's what the group is, right. the story of the group, the story of the adventuring company, uh, the party. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And has been for since third edition, at least, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Um, so and anyway. even and I think he says this a bit, yeah, too, that good. there is that aspect or, or maybe it came up in the comments. There is that aspect that um, it is a personal character definition kind of game. Right. Like it's about the, the choices you're making mm-hmm. for your build. Like a lot of that is also very powerful as well. Right. So on to our main topic today, we are going back to fifth edition and looking at the game in the 10 years since the release of the first public playtest packet of D&D Next. We are up to chapter six, which is all about customization options. So let us let me read from the book of players handbook. The combination of ability scores, race, class and background defines your character capabilities in the game. And the personal details you create set your character apart from every other character. Even within your class and race, you have options to fine-tune what your character can do. But this chapter is for players who, with the DM's permission, want to go a step further. Uh, So that is how the customization options chapter begins. And the first thing I thought of was with the DM's permission is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Because if you put it in the player's handbook, it is there. If you put something into the main rules of the game and then say, well, it's optional or up to the game master, you are leaving the game master in an impossible position uh, because the game master becomes the baddie if they have to say no I can't allow that. Uh, any thoughts there? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I would take it further that I think that the player's handbook should, instead of saying this is an option, say these, the, this type of customization can be problematic. Here's why. Right? Here's what it can do to your game. Yeah. Uh, right, player. Like, speak to the player and say, you know, don't be an ass about this, right? Like, don't add another class solely to destroy the game. Like, that's not going to be fun for you in the long run or the rest of the players or the DM. Um, and it's same thing with feat choice. If you start taking feat choices solely to be optimal, well, that's going to have an impact on the game. So think through that, right? Like, that's what I would rather do than, than to try to say this. And especially as right. we look at 1D and D and see how D&D is really not balance wise going to allow you to not have feats like that idea of taking an ability score is, is out the window uh at least with what we're seeing currently right it doesn't make any sense and yet we go back to what we've mentioned two or three times in different ways throughout this episode of this they want to sell it to everyone and yes one of their audience is let me see how i can put things together to absolutely break this. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say it's not a majority and it's not even a large minority, but it is a very powerful minority. It is a very motivated minority. These are the people who are going to buy every book mm -hmm. because they want to get that next thing. So to call them out like that, as truthful as it is, that, being the most powerful character may not be great for your game. Mm -hmm. Doesn't it doesn't even register with people who not even if they're trying to, you know, they may not understand that making the most powerful character, how it can affect the game because maybe they've never game mastered or maybe they just don't care. But, but uh, I think something can be so done it's, there it's, to, it's to reach to establish that, right? To establish that as a knowledge baseline. Mm -hmm. And and it's also how the game I gets agree. architected, right? You've got two main customization options here, multi-classing and feats. And when I think about multi-classing back when I began the game, it was literally because you're like, I want to be a rogue, but boy, I wish I could cast a spell or two as well, right? Or I want to wear slightly heavier armor and bump up my armor class. But it wasn't about breaking the game. It was just sort of having that dynamic. And so you'd invest in this other class and be a little more well-rounded, which you would hope would help your survival. But that wasn't necessarily true. And you were giving things up to do so. It has changed a lot since that time, <laughs> especially in third yeah. edition. But. Now, I'm. Yeah, with, with, with the earliest editions, multi-classing was obviously um, it was important because there weren't things like subclasses. There weren't mm -hmm. things like backgrounds. There, there weren't those things that let you create a character um, that you were envisioning and it might've been a little different without, it was lacking those other methods. So multi-classing was one of the few ways you could do it. But still multi-classing didn't really add power to your character. In a lot of ways right. it took power away, right? If you were a fighter and you multi-classed into wizard, you couldn't wear armor. I, I, I'm right in that, right? You couldn't cast spells. I think that's the case. Yeah. If you were wearing armor, right? Uh, unless, like in later edition, later in that, those editions, they added ways to do it. So, you know, you could cast spells then as a fighter, sure, 
but you your main thing with yeah. fighter is oh i can wear armor like the wizard can't so multi-classing didn't bump up your power the way it does in these later editions um it sort of drained your power yeah and, and realistically, let's talk about like the basics some of those combinations oh, some of those combinations like like a fighter wizard just didn't work uh you, you'd, you'd want to be an elf <laughs> which already had rules right. for doing it exactly but but yeah, I mean, I actually like 5th edition multi-classing a fair bit. And in that, it's not generally so absurdly broken. You're always going to have situations where someone takes a level of whatever to just get that thing. I mean, that that's just, that's going to happen. That someone's going to dip into a level or two to get whatever, you know, the shield spell or whatever. Some kind of thing like that. Um, and I disgustingly made a character not too long ago that took a single level of sorcerer to get some kind of, I can't even remember what I, why I did it, but for some, you know, re-roll or thing like that, that was just more powerful than having another level of your cleric class. But in general, it's not too strong. So I'm okay with it. I don't generally multi-class at all. A lot of people do, and I'm not judging you for it. Um, but I, I like straight class characters, um, I bet I have in D&D Beyond, out of many, many, many characters, I bet I have two multi-class characters. Um, so I would not personally have an issue if it went away. I know it's not going to go away. Uh, but I do like the idea of controlling it and keeping it fairly, um, fairly contained in terms of what it's capable of doing. I think that the current rules we've seen are exactly the ones in one D&D. So it doesn't sound like Wizards intends on changing it. Would you do something to change it? I doubt it. Um, I I don't. I think that multiclassing is one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't things. Again, you know, people people want that freedom because they've had that freedom for several editions now. It's as much of the game to some people as Magic Missile and Beholders. Yeah. So taking it out of the game is hard, but making it balanced um, against the other options you have is hard as well. But let's go through some of the things that this sure. uh, chapter talks about and, and why. So the first thing it talks about is prerequisites. You must have a score of 13 or higher in the important ability scores for both classes, the one that you already have and the new class you're taking why and that 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 score is 13 why because the rules have to protect players from themselves especially new players because unless you are thinking far ahead multi-classing can lead to a much weaker character than just keeping the same class mm -hmm. going forward and remember we've talked about this many times the main problem with games like dnd with terms of players is not players all being of a certain type, right? It's not that the power gamers, this group of power gamers is destroying the game, or it's not this group of people who are actors are destroying the game. Right. It's when you get three power gamers and three actors sitting down at the same table, both wanting different things from the game <laughs> yeah. and making the play sort of incompatible. So that's why we have these prerequisites because they don't want some someone who's super optimized and then somebody who's like oh i want to be a fighter rogue the or fighter rogue druid sorcerer paladin <laughs> uh and none none of my things work together and i'm pretty yeah. uh useless in the long run power wise we don't want them playing at the same table 
So this prerequisite sort of make sure you at least have a plus one in the abilities that you are going to be using regularly as that character. Yeah. I mean, Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and it's interesting, the choice of 13, I think it reflects where, where sort of the point spreads work uh, these days, because in, in older editions, this probably would have been a little higher. Um, 13 is pretty easy to hit, sort of even if it's an ability you're not going to use a whole lot. But it is telling you that, you know, hey, you'll have to focus on certain features and not others if you go down this route. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next, they talk about experience points, saying that you can gain a level via experience points based on your total character level rather than just on the one class. So to go from a level one rogue to a level two rogue, you would need 300 experience points. However, if you are a 10th level fighter and a first level rogue, you would need the full 15,000 experience points since you're, since you're actually going from 11 mm -hmm. to 12. And that may seem to people who have only played fifth edition or recent editions seems strange to have to point out but before that wasn't the case before if you were a 12th level wizard and a first level rogue to get to second level you would only need the number of experience points to get to a second level of rogue yeah, yeah. Uh, so that you know that's important to to note that people who have are holdovers from previous editions might need to understand that yeah and what it really means is you know if you're going to cap out at level 20 with your party you will at the end not be you know level 20 rogue level 20 fighter you'll be a total of 20 levels and the rest of your party will also be a total yep. of 20 levels you, you're not going to make that up in some weird way and ad and d was full of not only different experience point costs per level per class so a wizard was different than a fighter but mm -hmm. also different at different levels and so yeah you would do these weird things where you'd have a total number of levels if you're multi-class that was way higher than what the person next to you had. And in fact, you could end up with just, yeah, total different levels, what everybody was because the costs were all different. Right. It was a mess. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, next, it talks about hit points and hit dice. And uh, when you multi-class, you gain the hit die type of your new class, which might be different from your old classes. Um, this is important to clarify for a couple of different reasons. As we see new mechanics being introduced that use hit dice in different ways, um, you might be able to spend the D12 for being the barbarian as opposed to spending the D6 for being the wizard. Yeah. Uh, and that may come in handy. In fact, there is no rule that I'm aware of that explains which hit dice you recover when you take a long rest in fifth edition. No. So if you're a barbarian for wizard two um, and you use all your hit dice, you take a long rest, you're only supposed to get back half your hit dice. Can you just say, well, I'm going to get back all three of my barbarian hit dice and ignore the lower uh, D6 hit dice? I don't know. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't say. So I guess you get to choose. Mm -hmm. And uh, your what talks about proficiency bonus, your proficiency bonus is always determined by the character level, not by the individual class levels. And I've mentioned this before, but this is a concern I have about tying things with with proficiency bonus, because if you get class or subclass abilities that you can use a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and you end up uh, able to use each of those five times at high levels, um, especially yeah. if a new edition of the game gets rid of the action economy, the action economy sort of keeps that 
within reason because you still need to spend an action or a bonus action or a reaction to do the thing. So you can't do 12 things on the same turn. If we start adding things like no actions or swift actions or more, you get two bonus actions instead of just one, then that sort of imbalance could come into play a little bit more. Especially anything that you can do every single round, right? Saying that a feat is letting you do all the time and if it's tied to proficiency bonus, those are things to look at. And Wizards sometimes forgets, you know, when we have silvery barbs, like we see things that, wow, you can't believe it made it through. And so um, mm -hmm. it, it is a worry when so many things are going off of proficiency bonus that then this can be something that gets exploited. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I didn't put in the show notes, but is always important to see are uh, things you get from a class that sort of either overlap or are adjacent to um, abilities in your new class. So you are you start as a wizard. So you have spell slots and you have known spells and learned spells and so on. And then you take a ranger level and become a spellcaster that uses the ranger's sort of limited um, spell progression. How do those things work with each other? Uh, yeah. This is something that, since I ne rarely play spellcasters and rarely multi-class, I just ignore. Well, and and, uh, and it may. Could you change... explain to me how it works, Deus? Well, it, so when you have it, so a lot of it is whether your class gives you spell slots or whether you're memorizing, preparing spells, and that who knows what's going to happen because so far everything we're seeing seems to suggest that classes are moving to spell slots. So in the future, this may really be intermixed, but you, you basically get to add your spell slots together, which is one of the reasons why it it's, can be very powerful to dip into other classes and pick up spell slots that you can then use for your for the thing you want to spam all the time or, or those kinds of situations. Um, so in general, you're adding together your levels and all these various uh, spell slot classes to get more spell slots out of that. Uh, paladin and ranger classes mm -hmm. you have those levels and then third or fighter levels are rounded down if you have a spell casting feature uh, a third of those and you round down okay um so it, it's complicated is the answer and i think more complicated than, than people necessarily want it to be um to do by hand but but still quite powerful right it's it's quite powerful to get to get these a lot of times what people are looking for when they're doing these kinds of dips is just a couple of uses of something because that alone is is substantial, right? If I get silvery barbs a couple of times a day and a cool class feature, that can be more powerful than taking another level in my class, right? So for example, if you're a cleric of 15th level and you take one level of wizard, you can cast with your cleric's spell slot of high level that first level wizard spell that you just learned correct uh in this case that's you're mixing sort of prepared spells and not but but an easier example is if you did like a sorcerer and a cleric then then you would be as if you were that okay. combined levels and spell slots Okay, so I yeah. could cast a six-level version of a first-level spell, even though I'm only first-level in that class yeah. that the spell comes from. 
Yeah, and we get the table okay. given to us so we can kind of, you know, add up those total there. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, it is it is pretty interesting. And so what ends up being the 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 downside to multicast classing as a primary spellcaster is that you are giving up um, your your class um, progression being being faster if you take non or your spell availability if you take non uh non spell slot classes <laughs> it's complicated to say yeah um i think All right. that's so, i think in general i think just one is, of the one yeah, of the joys of multiclassing one of the joys <laughs> it is generally fine um it'll be interesting to see this may change and get a little simpler if we're getting rid of prepared spells which it might be what's happening the second thing that we get in this chapter are feats and we've talked about feats ad nauseum, I feel yeah, like, yeah. because of how powerful they are and how optional they seem to be in 5th edition but aren't. Yeah. So this is what the chapter says. A feat represents a talent or an area of expertise that gives a character special abilities. It embodies training, experience, and abilities beyond what a class provides. Talk to me. Well, um, yeah, I don't think we need to go in any great detail, but I think that what's happening here is, is that 5th edition itself at the 2014 level isn't exactly sure what it wants to do. Um, it wants to achieve this thing, to show this talent or area of expertise. It wants to let you expand upon a facet of your character. But as we heard back when 5th edition was being released, the goal was, hey, these feats are going to feel um, like a package, like, like a set of things that sort of tell a story. So they're meaty and they're supposed to do a lot for you. And, and sometimes when you look at it like athlete, actor, uh, you know, dungeon delver, that seems very true, right? Like you can see how they're going for that. I'm a healer. Um, but you also have feats like lucky. And, and things that are, you know, great weapon master, where it's just clearly power. And, and so I, I think it loses itself. And, and they aren't all this sort of big package that tells a story. And I think are becoming even less so about that uh, with what we see in 1D&D. &D. And I think that the game really is fighting itself, trying to decide whether it wants to be more like third edition, where you took a bunch of little things and it was sort of candy you're getting periodically to define yourself. Uh, and that also makes it fun to character build or whether you're trying to tell this larger narrative story and it's less about power and more about, you know, a, a number of different features you dip into in different opportunities. Um, a lot of feats also provide things that are a little more exploratory in nature or role playing. So they're hitting on the other pillars of play versus combat. It'll be interesting to see whether that waters down further, because I think there it's easy to to want to make these choices be all combat pillar related, which is a danger to the game. So if, if this were me, mm -hmm. if I were re-envisioning fifth edition, I think I would want fewer feats that are meteor packages. I like that as a concept and I would want to make them more interesting and less combat uh, heavy. Mm -hmm. That'd be my goal. More interesting, less combat heavy. And right now they are in fifth edition. They are, used instead of a an ability score increase right which 
is the thing that's supposed to balance out. Right. If you wanted to balance them, you could say this feat needs to be equal to a plus one and an ability that the character would have, presumably one that's important to them, that will add one to their armor class, that will add one to their attack bonus and damage, that will add one to their yeah. spell save DC, et cetera, et cetera. And if a feat doesn't do that, either underpowered or overpowered, then you are falling back into that trap of the pe people sitting down at the table are going to have much more overpowered or much more underpowered characters than each other, which throws out the balance at the table. Amen. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. So otherwise you can go back and listen to all the other episodes where we talk about feats, either in fifth edition or in any of the books that have added yeah. feats recently, uh, or our look at one uh, D and D's feats where we talk about it in great detail as well. Yeah. Anything else about chapter six, Teos? No, it's an interesting chapter and one that may be yeah, changing substantially in the future. We'll see. Awesome. Well, thank you, Teos, for sharing your uh, radiance with us yet again. And thank you to our patrons um, who have done us the great service of allowing us to keep bringing this show to you as an independent entity. Um, thank you to our Master of Dungeons supporters and uh, a special shout out to our Master of Realms who are listed in our show notes and a shout out to our Master of the Multiverse backers, um, Craig Bailey, John Carney, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermay, Andy Edmonds at nerdrenomicon.com, Ben F., Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Eric Mengi, Nain Akra, Nain Akra, is that how you pronounce that? It that is now. Um, Falcon <laughs> Neal, Krishna Simonse, David Somerville at the Planagia RPG setting, Joe Tyler, and Graham Ward. Thank you. And thank you, too, to all of our listeners. Yes. Um, if you would like to become a patron of the show, please consider supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash mastering dnd teos where can people find you on the interwebs find me at alphastream.org i'm on twitter at alphastream and all those other social media things everybody's trying out i'm somewhere out there with the same alphastream but not really checking anything so. how about you sean mm -hmm. uh until twitter implodes completely I am on Twitter at Sean Berwin, and the podcast is on Twitter at MasteringDND. Uh, you can join our community and ask questions on Patreon. You can also watch our show on our new Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel, where you can leave comments, questions, suggestions, and the like. So, Teos, we're done. We're done with Chapter 6. What are we going to do now? Uh, we're going to fight chapter seven with all of our optional feats that make us super, super beefy. Mm. I, I am known uh, as a flower monger. That's my feat. Super, super beefy is what I'm having for lunch. And I'm not talking, <laughs> I'm not talking about the, I'm talking about the stuff you make bread with. Oh, that kind of flower. Yeah. Mm. There's, there's a joke there somewhere, but I've lost it. <laughs> <laughs>